Hello and welcome to the album years and uh, for the first time ever we've kind of divided one year into two parts because there were just so many great albums or not necessarily great but int some interesting albums too maybe not so great but ones that we wanted to talk about that we felt we had to to make this a two-parter so this is part two of 1979. A new decade is just around the corner. What's going on? Well, there's a lot going on. We've already talked a lot about um, what was going on in the world of art rock, what was going on in the world of singer-songwriters, progressive rock, post-punk, synth-pop. But there are also this year some albums which are... Well, I tell you what, first of all, let me just do a quick, a brief recap of what's going on in some other genres. Uh, so jazz rock. We have some great jazz rock albums this year. Um, we have Brand X, Product. We have Bruford's One of a Kind. We've also got Frank Zappa making not one, not two, but three albums this year, I think. Um, uh, Joe's Garage Act One perhaps being the real standout from, from the albums he made this year. Um uh, Carlos Santana made a solo record this year, Oneness. Uh, Weather Report's 8.30. If you like Weather Report, this is them at their best. Anyway, so we disagree on that. Um, <laughs> and then we have uh, the world of heavy rock. We have... Uh, now, it's very interesting, Tim, just, just off air a minute ago, you made the point, actually, that New Wave of British Heavy Metal was just around the, around the corner. And the whole idea with New Wave of British Heavy Metal was that it was kind of revitalising the world of heavy rock yeah. and metal. But actually, the, the, the list of albums that came out the year year before uh, the new wave of British heavy metal really broke through kind of gives light to that doesn't it I mean ACDC's Highway to Hell Scorpion's Love Drive Black Rose by Thin Lizzy Motorhead's Overkill which you've you know you've you said is that their best album I think it's definitely you know that maybe may mm. an Ace of Spades are their best records uh, Gillen's Mr. Universe uh, Rainbow's Down to Earth Motorhead's Bomber also from this year which and obviously another fantastic title track so you know it, as you say it was in pretty rude health wasn't it despite the fact that um, apparently it, it, you know it needed new wave of British heavy metal to come along to revitalise well, the world yeah. new wave of British prog you could kind of understand in the sense that the music that it was trying to evoke in its covers and um, its arrangements had long gone you know the artists that they were influenced by Genesis Yes had long since abandoned that Baroque approach whereas with the new wave of British heavy metal um, you couldn't, in a sense, get more brutal than Motorhead. Motorhead having two huge albums in 79 that were commercially successful and respected. And also, of course, you know, um, the music mutating into more popular areas with Whitesnake, Rainbow, Rainbow yeah. Gillen, etc. You know, the Deep Purple offshoots. And, and ACDC arguably producing their greatest album in Highway to Hell. Um, so the kind of that, rough, almost new wave influenced metal was um, seemingly extraordinarily successful at that point. And you also had bands like UFO with their double live album Strangers in the Night, I think was um, 79, which was, was enormous. So yeah, it, it's odd. You, you can't quite see the need for the new wave of heavy British heavy metal bands in the sense that it was already in the system and it was already enormous. Whereas obviously new wave of British prog, there's there's an absence of what people is that, want. Is that, that true, style. though? Is that true, though? Because we already talked about this. The Enid, arguably the most pompous progressive rock band of all, you know. Uh, and, and you know, bands like UK, you know, a, a relatively new band, still making very vintage progressive rock. Uh, Jethro Tull, Pink Floyd, Steve Hackett, Mike Oldfield, Camel, still very much keeping faith with, with the fan base, I think. 
Uh, I think this is the last year for it, though. And I think, you know, when you're about sort of 14, 15, 16, two or three years makes a big difference. So with the new wave of British heavy metal, it comes directly after this or during it. So but I think there, I think your point is well made. There is an analogy here, uh, certainly. But I'm, but again, I'm looking at the list and I'm thinking, well, really, apart from Motorhead, it's kind of all a bit, it's a little bit more slick and a, perhaps a little bit less what the real you know, heavy rock fans would want from their metal, isn't it? I mean, Scorpions Love Drive, White, Sli- White Snakes Love Hunter, Gill and Mr. Universe, Rainbow Down to Earth. It's getting a bit more pop and a bit more fay, isn't it? So perhaps the new wave of British heavy metal brought back that sort of edgy, but Motorhead were kind of the exception to that, weren't they? Yeah, they, Motorhead, yeah. ACDC, maybe Judas Priest as well, I think. Yeah, possibly, yeah, yeah. But interesting, interesting point though, yeah. Um so also this year, in this category I've called the new pop, because these were the bands that were having the number one albums, the number one singles. Uh, the Special's first album, we talked about the Special's second album in, in a previous episode, but this is the first album, which is, a, again, a great record. Uh, Madness, One Step Beyond, The Clash's London Calling, which is, I, I think is brilliant, but it's canon. It's mm. been discussed and it's always in the top 10 albums of all time, so we don't, we don't need to discuss it here. The Jam Setting Suns, which had a, a massive hit in Eaton Rifles on it. There were even bigger hits to come from The Jam. But I think the band that kind of fits into this that were American is the B-52s. And I know you're a big fan of, of, of this first album, Tim. So tell us about the B-52s. Like Alex Chilton, they were taking influences from 50s, 60s, this particular sort of post-war American affluence and optimism. And they were reinventing that in the post-punk era. And I think Blondie had something of that as well, but the B-52s carried it through with the image as well, the cover artwork. And it was this kind of distinctive um, reinvention of a particular period of American culture. And um, there's something just so infectious. And what's interesting about it is that despite this kind of 60s girl group and 50s rock and roll, there's also something of that edgy Afrobeat funk that you find in Talking Heads. So they did sonically very nicely fit in with the CBGB scene as well. Very logically years later, they do an album Mesopotamia with um, David Byrne producing. Mm. And that's where you can really hear a connection between kind of Byrne's quite stripped down grooves and the B-52s. And I think it's a really underrated piece of work, but it's one of those that got pretty much slaughtered at the time. But I, I, um, I, I mean, I can totally hear the Talking Heads connection straight away. I mean, tracks like Planet Claire as well, the first track. But we're going yeah. to we're going to talk about Talking Heads now, I think, because uh, I've you know some of these categories obviously they're very arbitrary the way I've done them. I've put Talking Heads in the art rock category, but because they uh-huh. because I tell you why because they weren't really having hits at this point. So the new pop I've sort of reserved for the artists that were really crossing over to the pop charts. Um, Talking Heads didn't really have a big hit until the following album, uh, you know, Remain in Light with, with Once in a Lifetime. Fear of Music, they were still very much a kind of underground art rock act, weren't they, in a sense? So this year is another fantastic year for for art rock artists. Bowie released Lodger, which I think we should talk about because yeah. it's not canon, because it's not the album that Bowie fans talk about a lot. It's not the Bowie album that the, the critics tend to come back to. But it's a fascinating one in his kind of career trajectory, isn't it? It comes between it comes between two kind of established canon classics, heroes and scary monsters. It's kind of the the forgotten sort of you know album between those two towers. Um, but it's a fascinating record, isn't it? Because he's doing things on this record that he's not really done before, 
or since maybe later yeah. maybe maybe later on with an album like outside he kind of tried something a bit similar but this whole idea you know with with boys keep swinging where everybody in the band is told to play an instrument that they wouldn't normally play so yeah. the guitar player is playing the drums and the bass player is playing the piano i love that i mean that's that's pure art rock isn't it in a sense uh, that kind of playfulness but you know, he comes up with this amazing track out of it. I mean, Boys Keep Swinging, what an amazing track. The singles mm. from this record for me, DJ and Boys Keep Swinging, two of the great Bowie singles from this whole, you know, this whole decade. But the album itself as a whole is very, I mean, it's truly experimental, isn't it? And maybe you can explain a bit more about it. Since you probably well, know yeah, that. Yeah, I think it perhaps is, you know, Bowie's most experimental album, along with Outside and perhaps uh, Black Star. Again, it's one of those albums where I'm not quite sure people don't like it because it does have two astonishing hits. It's not relentlessly bleak. It's not relentlessly experimental. It's not relentlessly off the wall, but it is one of the most inventive, fluid, unpredictable albums he made. You can hear him dovetailing with the kind of art rock of what people like Talking Heads are doing in New York at that point. You can hear him using world music reference points you know once more there are afro grooves there's also kind of eastern european um and eastern almost turkish influences on this because uh, perhaps resulting from his time living in a turkish neighborhood in berlin and what i like about this it's bowie sounding as if it's almost like controlled hysteria if that makes any sense throughout this album it pulls back from absolute chaos so it's controlled hysteria and um, goes off in so many tantalizing directions many of which um, he never really investigated afterwards and 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 vocally he's at his mm. vocally and lyrically is mm. his most freewheeling mm. as well i love his voice on this album it's on tracks like don't look back in anger it's just it's pure yes. bow, is it? yeah yeah, I mean, I love this record. It's it's definitely an outlier in the Bowie catalogue, but I think in many ways it's an artist where the outliers over t over time do tend to become the most loved, beloved by the real hardcore fans, don't they? I mean, you talked yeah. you talked you talked on a previous episode about how Ziggy, you know, the established you know classic in the Bowie catalogue, was one of your least favorite albums. It's it's it, you know because you you kind of think you feel it's one of his least interesting. Um, in sort of in terms of the ambition of what he's attempting to do is not is nowhere near the same league as on say on an album like Lodger, mm. but it's but it's also I think it also suffers because it's seen as the sort of runt of the trio, isn't it? The low that what they call the Berlin trio, although most of it wasn't recorded in Berlin, but it, it's seen as the runt of that kind of that three album run that Eno was working on with him, um, and it gets forgotten because of that. But I think the real Bowie fans know in many respects it's one of the jewels of his catalog, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's partly as well that, you know, when you're looking at those other albums, you can more easily categorise them. So Low, of course, is seen as his electronic, ambient and proto-new wave album. Heroes sees him colliding to a certain extent with the emerging new wave and stamping his identity all over it. And with this album there are as many musical directions as there are songs and perhaps that's the problem difficult to know because of course Roxy Music's album from this year as well Manifesto which is one of my favourite Roxy Music albums um, was also dismissed mm. I like and that I think this is the, yeah I like that record yeah it's the last great Roxy Music band album for me this is where with the great Paul Thompson and with I think it's Alan Spenner and Gary Tibbs on bass they make an astonishing band sound and they take the music 
to territories they've never been before. I mean, this is split into two sides, the east side and the west side. And the east side has more of Roxy, perhaps, um, if you like, setting their camp in the new wave, but in their very much experimental art rock guys. And the second side, the west side, it's Roxy investigating more R&B and soul influences. But once more, you know, in quite an unpredictable um, experimental way. But of course, it's known for the single Dance Away, which is one of their great singles. But, you know, I, I think fantastically creative achievement yeah. and one of their most underrated i like me. it i mean dance away definitely looks forward to things like avalon and and and, and flesh and blood doesn't it it's got the more of that sort of lounge yeah. sort of 80s polished lounge sound but but then you have songs like trash which is much more close to perhaps well so it, it is you know we talked about sometimes we love these albums where an artist is kind of between two worlds maybe manifesto yeah. is another example of that it's kind of somewhere between what they've done and also what they're about to become um we've also got we're talking heads with fear of music a great record um from this year we've talked about talking heads at length before on the sh on the show but the album the other album i have in this category that, that i think you do want to talk about and i'm a big fan of these guys too uh and this is another very very interesting record which is the godly and cream record from this year freeze frame which is has one of my favorite godly and cream uh, one of my favorite songs from the whole kind of 10 cc family which is i pity inanimate objects which, which <laughs> yeah. is just i mean this is them at their most conceptual in the sense that how can we create a pop song which has a which has a catchy melody where every single syllable in the vocal performance is a different pitch so some syllables sound like the voice has been slowed down some syllables sound like the voice has been sped up and it must have taken them ages to piece it together and that's what I love about these guys it's that it's that mm. almost kind of like we set out to solve a problem we approach it like a piece of science but we come out with this great pop tune anyway um so anyway freeze frame it's i think it's their third album isn't it after l and consequences yes, it is. uh yeah. we, we we must talk about consequences when we talk about 1977 one of my favorite albums of all time but this is another great uh inventive pop record isn't it that probably most people would have would have missed at the time did it have any hits on it i don't it had a, well, the Englishman. Oh, Englishman in New York, in New York wasn't, yeah. of course, that wasn't the Sting track. Um, yeah. This was played on TV a few times, and you great know, video. I was a huge Ten CC. Yeah, mm. great video, mm. and I was a huge Ten CC and um, Godly and Cream fan. So I remember this being on programs like Magpie. Bizarrely, you know, Magpie also actually had around the time of Consequences. In fact, just before it was made an article on how the gizmo was made. Mm. Imagine that, children's TV in Britain. Those were the days. A 10-minute article on the gizmo. That's mm. what you need. So the, just for those that don't know, the gizmo was a, was a contraption that Godley and Cream invented that basically was something that fitted on the guitar that enabled them to create the sound of orchestral instruments like violins, cellos, because it actually... It had little, I think it had little metal wheels that would kind of rotate yeah. and they would scrape against the string. So rather than the normal sort of guitar sound of being plucked or strummed, it had that kind of more texture of a bow going across a string. So it enabled them to create these, I mean, on consequences, it's just off the scale what they did on that record. Mm. It, it just enabled them to create these incredible orchestral soundscapes all using the guitar and this contraption called the gizmo, which unfortunately never quite caught on. Um, but it, it's certainly the signature sound on a lot of those early Godly and Cream records, isn't it? Yeah, and very distinctive. And one of the tracks you were mentioning are Pity Inanimate Objects. The guitar solo on that track is mm. astonishing. Also crazy. As yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, again, it, it's the third in a run of tremendously inventive albums that don't really seem to have 
many peers as well. The thing about Godling Cream is that they do seem locked, almost sealed in their unique world. And what's kind of interesting about them is that 10CC a year earlier had done perhaps their most successful album, Bloody Taurus, but it was artistically several leagues below Freeze Frame and L. And in some ways, it's almost seemed that 10CC, as soon as Godling Cream had left, that they'd kind of aged 50 years. That You know, I quite like um, Bloody Taurus. Deceptive Bends, I really like, you know. I mean, in a sense, they are... I mean, we, this category is art rock. This is really art in capital letters rock, isn't it? Because these are. it's almost like they are... They are painters or artists, but making pop music. The way they think yeah. about music, the way they imagine each song has to paint a picture, like a, a completely different landscape to every other picture they painted. I mean, if anyone is interested in Godling Cream, I, I mean, I would say go and listen to this track, I Pity Inanimate Objects. Even if you don't like it, you'll be fascinated by the way it's put together, the way it's recorded, the way that every syllable in the vocal performance is, mm. a, is a, a different... I can't really explain it very clearly. You have to go and listen to it. Every syllable is, a, is recorded at a different speed. Um, and, it, you know, like I say, it must have taken them a, an eternity to put this together. Um, but it's pure, It's in that sense, it's pure art rock, you know, really made by people that have obviously grown up uh, as thinking of themselves more as painters or artists than as pop musicians. Yeah. Um, fascinating. We, when we do 1977, we're going to. I know we're going to wax lyrical about consequences because <laughs> have an entire episode. Oh, based wow! On what an al- what an album that is. Anyway, electronic ambient music. Let's just have a, a brief rundown of electronic amb- amb- electronic and ambient music from this year. We have. Um, uh, Steve Hillage's Rainbow Dome music, which is uh, very much an anomaly in his catalogue, a, a purely ambient record, which strangely, I think, became later on in the 90s, became the most popular album in his catalogue uh, when it was mm. picked up by people like Alex Patterson of The Orb, uh, you know, as very much part of their aesthetic, you know, um, very cosmic, beautiful, textured, floating ambient music. It's a beautiful record, that I love that record. Uh, Ashra's Correlations, Tangerine Dreams, Force Majeure, Perhaps not the best Tangerine Dream album, a slightly more ponderous progressive rock album in their catalogue, but but still, you know, still still kind of there, keeping faith with the fans. A couple of great Vangelis albums from this year, Opera mm-hmm. Sauvage in China, great Klaus Schultz album, June, Heldon, uh, Standby. Heldon are an interesting band, aren't they? They're kind of like um they're kind of like the dark side, the kind of the dark flip side of of say something like Steve Village Rainbow Dome music, which is very much a cosmic yeah. meditation music and then you've got held and standby which is this kind of sick sound isn't it it's very dissonant but it's very intense um and i think it's i think it's aged quite well because of that actually it still sounds quite good well held and do sound a band apart in that genre don't they and i guess that they came more out of the eno frip tonalities rather than you know tangerine dream or klaus schultz but what's interesting is richard peenhouse is still um He's still very experimental. He's made albums with Mertzbau and, and Wolf Eyes, <laughs> right. you know. So he's, that's very interesting that whereas artists, an artist like, you know, I don't know, um, Vangelis ended up making big mainstream Hollywood movies, Heldon on the mm. same time, Richard Pienhaus has ended up collaborating with some of the most extreme industrial and noise artists. And I think that tells you all you need to know really about where his music came from and is still coming yeah. from. He uh, didn't make an album with Lulu, you're right. He didn't make an album with Lulu. No, that is, that is true, yeah. Um, 
Although Metallica did make an album with Lou Reed called Lou Reed. Yeah. <laughs> Which I actually like. I've never even heard it. I've never heard it. I, I've heard conflicting views about it. Um, some people, of course, dismissed it as garbage. But I, I, you know, I've heard other people say, actually, it's, it's, um, it's actually really, really good. Yeah, I think well. it's somewhere in between. And, and it's also, you know, with some of these collaboration albums that you get, it's um, maybe it's a bad Metallica album and a great Lou Reed album. I came to it more from a Lou Reed perspective it was you know Reed doing something very different but yet being true to himself so I would like to I think what's sad about that and we're kind of we're kind of digressing slightly here moving to talk about Metallica and Lou Reed's album Lulu but what's very sad about that is that Metallica are a band that it seems their fan base will not allow to change um, and it's a shame in a way, isn't it? The Metallica, you think here's one of the biggest bands in the world and they tried to pull off a radio head in a way, didn't they? By doing something completely mm. different and redefining their audience and it backfired horribly on them. And their last couple of records, they've just gone back to their, their kind of very uh, typical Metallica sound, which to someone like me, and I bought Master of Puppets at the time and I loved it, to, to me... I would be more interested. Sure. I would mm. be more interested if they were doing more experimental things. It's 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 artists kind of confronting expectations that keeps me interested in them. But I think it's fair to say Metallica are an example of a band that the moment they try to do anything different, their very very conservative audience basically uh, abandon them. But I think you can bring that back to '79 because one of the interesting things is that a lot of bands were confronting expectations. So as much as Tusk isn't the Clash. It is confronting the expectations that people had of Fleetwood Mac mm-hmm. after rumours. Mm-hmm. As much as um, Stevie Wonder's you know, Secret Life of Plants is not quite uh, Zanakis, it's an extraordinarily experimental album that isn't a logical follow-up to um, you know, Songs in the Key of Life. And that's one of the things that was so exciting again about 79 that quite a number of artists, David Bowie, for example, you know, this was not the easy album for him to produce. They just went with their own instincts and creativity. I think you're right. Let, let's, let's talk about um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of albums more, in more depth now, now that we've kind of you know, briefly summarised what was going on in some other genres. But let, let's, let's perhaps talk about a couple of albums that I think, I've got them in the outliers category. I cannot really think how you would categorise these albums. Um... And one of them is is the the first album by This Heat. Now, This Heat are they're kind of an anomaly because they are they're kind of a band which are seen as part of the new wave scene mm. to an extent. But these guys have been around the block. They're 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 musicians that have been in progressive rock bands. They are musicians that have been in free jazz bands. They are very musically literate. They set themselves up with their own recording space, Cold Storage Studios in London. And they start making this music, which it's very difficult to categorise. One minute it might remind you a little bit of King Crimson. The next minute it might remind you a little bit of, say, what Robert Wyatt was doing on Rock Bottom. The next minute it might remind you of what Public Image are doing or Magazine are doing. Mm. The next minute it might remind you of Peter Peter Brotsman free jazz record. It's just all over the place. And it's fascinating because of that. But I think it also paid the price because it didn't really belong in any genre. It was it was a beyond genre. Now, we talked about this before, I think, uh, in some other episodes, about how albums sometimes that seem outside of genre 
pay the ultimate price for that, don't they? If you can't market mm. a record to an audience, um, you do end up kind of floating, you know, kind of disembodied in a way. Um, but I think those albums stand the test of time more so than most generic albums. But at the same time, they have moments on this record that could be punk or new wave. Yeah, though I kind of link it weirdly with a couple of artists we talked about earlier, Godly and Cream. Yes, and absolutely. Maybe even Peter Hamill, yes. in the sense that these are just people making noises in the studio and putting together what they feel is the most interesting compilation of those noises. And uh, it covers a lot of ground. And I guess whereas it, it has paid a price for not being any one particular thing, equally, it's still talked about in reverence now. So yes. it's sort of paid off in the long run. And obviously the long run being an Eagles album in 1979. The less said about that, the better. The the I mean the inf- <laughs> the influence of, I mean the influence of this record absolutely. I mean there are a lot of people that now will drop this heat as a as a kind of you know as an influence or reference point. Um, yeah. And they so they have in a sense ascended to that level uh, in the same way that perhaps bands like Can. Uh, and Faust did. And I think there is a sense that they have, you know, if there is an association, it is with the Krautrock scene, it is with the bands like Can and Faust, who could take everything from music concrete to, to, to rock and roll, to progressive yeah. rock, to jazz rock, uh, you know, and, and mix them all up together and somehow in this weird kind of Teutonic soup. Uh, and here we have a band doing that in England um, towards mm. the end of the 70s. There's something about that first album. Um, it, it's, the, it's the pure kind of like sense of foreboding. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? There was late 70s that there was that sense of foreboding and, and actually a couple of albums have this. So, you know, we were saying Stormwatch has a real sense of foreboding. Mm. And weirdly, one of the albums we kind of glossed over, which you've not heard, Randy Newman, mm. his ballads kind of hint at what Johnsburg, Illinois will do, you know, on Tom Waits' Swordfish mm. Trombones. He's coming from a very similar place. It's very 1979 in that, like the long run, like Tusk, it's the album following the huge hit, the entry into the mainstream that doesn't quite hit the mark with the audience. I, I love that album of, of uh, Nilsson doing, doing his songs. I must oh, that's a beautiful album. Yeah. Nilsson sings Newman. Yeah, yeah, one of the finest albums of the early 70s. Yeah. I think it's even, isn't it even late 60s? It's quite early, I think, isn't it? Maybe. I, My, it yeah. I thought it was 71. I'm not sure. It might be 70, actually. Should we see what kind of schoolboy era you've made there uh, and actually look it up? Uh, well, you said 69. Well, let's see. Shall we see who's the schoolboy here, g- then? Right. I'm going to go for 1970. OK, you might be right. Let's have a look. Nielsen Sings Newman, February 1970, recorded in 1969. So I'm going to say that's a draw. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to say that's a draw. Oh, that's a terrible mistake. I know, it's terrible. Well, earlier on, you called Jeth- Jethro Tull's album Benefits. I mean, that's embarrassing. Benefits? I... That's embarrassing. I don't think I did call it you Benefits. Did. But that's probably cause, you did. That's probably because I was on Benefits when it was released. You I called suspect. it Benefits. Now, but, I was going to humiliate you, but I thought, I'll let it go. But now you've humiliated me. I'm afraid that... Uh, look, no. in a previous episode, you said, well, this album, when it was released in 1874. Now, I didn't correct you that you're a century out. What album did I say was released in 1874? Just listen back. Just listen back to the album years, which is worth doing. Well, it, it, I don't know what album we're talking about. Maybe it should have been released in 1874. It perhaps sounded like it was released in 1874. <laughs> Maybe that was your point. 
So let's get the industrial section out of the way now. Uh, now, as you know, uh, folks, if you listened to this show before, you know I'm a massive fan of industrial music and Tim really is not. So I'm forcing him to listen to, uh, as a consequence of doing these shows, I'm forcing him to listen to music that he's not familiar with and he probably doesn't like. And this episode, no exception. This year was a very important year for industrial music. This is the year of the first albums by Cabaret Voltaire, one of the most important industrial industrial acts of all now interestingly tim you mentioned suicide earlier i was i always thought cabaret voltaire and suicide had a lot in common but cabaret voltaire yeah. was like suicide with the horrible american rock and roll thing removed which i really <laughs> is the bit i really don't like and but but there's just there is a strong uh, sonic similarity i think between uh what cabaret voltaire were doing using dr- drum machines and synthesizers um uh, and this is their first album mix up it's a classic album it's not my favorite uh, Cabaret Voltaire album, but it is a classic, and and you know again, it's the sound that you couldn't imagine hap- having happened without punk having happened in the meantime. Um, now, one of the other really important records from this year is Throbbing Gristle's third album, Twenty Jazz Funk Greats. Now, Throbbing Gristle have I think been largely written out of the history of what happened in 1976, 1977. Because in 1977, they released their album, Second Annual Report. If the Sex Pistols Never Mind the Bollocks was actually a heavy metal album, uh, Second Annual Report is truly the spirit of punk. This is an album that was recorded on cassettes. Uh, It's incredibly lo-fi, using synthesizers, but in a very punk way. Um, Recording your albums on cheap Sony Walkmans. Pressing your album in plain white sleeves with pasted-on artwork. Um, And interestingly, two albums later, Throbbing Gristle's 20 Jazz Funk Greats, they're not only... um, you know, they're not only ahead of the game in, in 1977, they're also ahead of the game in 1979 because they're starting to incorporate things like easy listening into their sound. Uh, Tim, tell me about your impressions listening to these <laughs> records. I love this. I'm obsessed with this music. I absolutely love it, but I understand it's not for everyone. Yeah, it's a bit like putting hemlock in my strawberry milkshake, really, wasn't it? This Cabaret Voltaire, I did hear The Suicide influence, quite liked the use of distorted bass synths and drum machines. Um, Throbbing Gristle, I quite enjoyed, partly because of the diversity of it and partly because it could be disquietingly beautiful on occasion. Um, Quite unusually upbeat and cheesy, but in an interesting way. There's almost kind of precursor to electropop on a couple of the pieces. Um, And I think the cover is a very nice indication of what the contents um, contain because the cover is them sort of mimicking this very cheap MFP middle of the road collection. Yes. And they're amidst the flowers. It's almost as if you've got MFP version of Sound of Music mm. and they're on a cliff top with lovely flowers. But then you have to know that this cliff top is Beachy Head, mm-hmm. which in Britain is the suicide capital. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been there, actually. It's a very unusual place. I've stayed there, not with the intention of committing suicide, I hasten to add. And um, it's a very beautiful part of the country, but it's very eerie because you continually see ambulances and people wandering around <laughs> checking to see if somebody else has uh, jumped off. So very unusual. And the contents of the album are that, where it's on one level, at parts quite pretty, 
But there's always something disquieting beneath the surface. There's a subversion of easy listening on this record. And, and yeah, this is, absolutely. Yeah, and, and this is what's fascinating about them. And, and it's fascinating how easy listening became then, from that point on, became very much a part of industrial culture, uh, you know, p- picked up by a lot of other artists. Uh, you know, Nurse with Wound, which we're going to talk about also, uh, mm-hmm. did an album called The Sylvian Babs uh, Hi-Fi Companion, which was very much a pastiche of one of those kind of 50s or 60s American, uh, you know, easy listening albums. Um one thing you didn't mention about the cover, Tim, is I don't know if you looked at the back of the cover. It's a repeat of the front cover, but with a with a corpse in the foreground. Oh, I haven't seen that. Okay, no, yeah. I've only seen the front cover. That's that's really playing uh, with people's perceptions about what mm. is good or bad taste. And I think that's what Throbbing Gristle was very good at. They were very good at pushing people to the boundaries of what what they would consider to be in poor taste. Uh, yeah. so, so the serial killer chic, of course, the ter- the very term industrial music was created by Throbbing Gristle, was coined by Genesis Peerage, industrial music for industrial people. This idea of, and you've kind of touched on this when we talked about some other things, and you touched on this when we talked about punk, the sense of disillusionment that was around in, particularly in Britain, that's all we can talk about, obviously, in relation to our, our, our own lives, that sense of the, the winter of discontent, there was power cuts every week yeah. as well. And so this kind of music reflects that, particularly the birth of industrial music. A lot of people listening to this would, would think, think to themselves, well, why, why is that good? That's the very opposite of what I want from art. I want something enlightening and enriching. But music has also always been about making people look at the world in a different way, holding up a mirror, you know. But the other album we want to, we want to mention here is the first Nurse With Wound album, one of my favourite all-time artists, Nurse With Wound made their first record this year chance meeting on a dissecting table of a sewing machine and an umbrella and the story i love most about this album is that i think it's when sounds reviewed it they gave it five question marks so (laughs) so which i think tells you all you need to know about it what the fuck would they have made of this record in 1979 Mm. you know well this is interesting as well because obviously on another level one of the things i find interesting about 1979 is that we were talking about the older artists who were suddenly reinventing themselves in the face of punk, some of them extremely well. So people like Fripp, Hamill, Bill Nelson, and so on. But the flip side of that was some of the new wave artists who were, while giving rein to their actual core influences, sounding a lot older. And there were a couple of cases here, because I think The Clash that we've mentioned, London Calling, I think is a great album. But of course, it goes back to anything from Scar to rock and roll to almost Mott the Hoople, hard rock. Similarly, Tom Robinson too. I don't know if you've heard that, but that has kind of honky-tonk Rolling Stones influences at times. A lot of the Who is in there. And it was quite interesting that while you had some artists who were sort of moving towards the future inspired by punk, you had some of the punks who were suddenly completely just looking in the rearview mirror. I think that's partly because what, what, we, what we talked about earlier, that a lot of the punk musicians actually had come through the pub rock uh, scene as opposed to coming from nowhere. You know, they'd been around for years playing pubs and they had been playing R&B and they had been playing rock and roll standards. Uh, you know, certainly in the case of Joe Strummer, who his band, the 101ers, were, you know, they're just a good time rock and roll band playing the pub scene. And mm. suddenly he's in the clash and he's like, he's like the spokesman for the punk generation. Of course, it's never as simple as that, as you made the point. Sure. The, the year zero was, of course, nothing of the sort. You mentioned Tom Robinson band here. There's there's a little kind of sidebar here that I want to talk about, which is produced by Todd, and uh, <laughs> produced by Todd Rundgren, of course. And he made he produced at least three albums we know of this year. 
Uh, Tom Robinson Band's TRB2 is one of them. Two albums that I know you're a big fan of are also produced by Todd this year, which are The Tube's Remote Control and Patti Smith's Wave. Uh, Wave, I know, obviously I know Dancing Barefoot, but I don't know the album other than that. that great, it's a great song, uh, great single. So tell us about these two albums, uh, if you can, Tim. Well, I suppose thinking about the Todd productions this year, I was wondering if he was attempting to help the bands find their natural voice. So for me, Patti Smith's Wave, it's perhaps her least liked album, but it's maybe my second favourite after um, Horses. You can almost hear a kind of... Jefferson Air playing Grateful Dead Freedom in some of the arrangements, as well as a couple of classic singles in Frederick and Dancing Barefoot. As an album, I think it's one of the most natural sounding and powerful Patti Smith releases. And I just kind of think that, you know, Rundgren in effect is giving them free reign, whereas the previous two albums, Radio Ethiopia and Easter, both of which I like, and maybe making more self-conscious nods to the scene that surrounds them. This really seems to be locked in Patti Smith's own world. And um, the same with Tom Robinson, that, you know, in a way, obviously, Rundgren was a huge Who fan, probably a huge Stones fan. And you can imagine that he's allowing them the freedom to express their natural voice. With the Tubes, the Tubes had had about three studio albums before this, and they've been magnificently varied. I mean... The big hit, White Punks on Dope, is closer to David Bowie's art pop or Mott the Hoople's um, art rock. But the albums themselves were all over the place. They would shift from sort of Return to Forever, Zapparesque, Jazz Fusion, to disco, to pastiches of 40s film music. And I think it was purely on the basis of the title White Punks on Dope that they had this reputation in the punk field, plus, of course, their risque live performance. But, I mean, you know, I always I, I like their first few albums, but, you know, they're, they're daffy, they're all over the place. And, and in some ways, you know, you can hear a lot more that they have in common with the Residents and Frank Zappa than they do the CBGBs scene. And they're fantastic musicians. Remote Control is a concept album. It's based on the novel Being There that was also made into a film around the same time with Peter Sellers. And effectively, it's about an idiot savant who is reared on television. And the cover is is a magnificent evocation of that. For this album, Todd has created a very consistent sound world. And there's none of the irony of their previous albums, none of the jokes. And... It's just a fantastic sounding art rock pop album that also hints at the FM rock band that they're going to become. In some ways, you could compare it with Quadrophenia in its soundscape. There's a lot of use of synth, but there's also a lot of use of um, powerful rock band, but a powerful rock band of virtuosos. And as I've said, some killer choruses where I think that Rundgren got involved in the writing uh, of this album as well so he really kind of hones what maybe the band always wanted to be so um okay so let, let's kind of start to wrap up now because um obviously we've, we've talked about a lot of records here we do need to just quick quickly i think round up um what was happening in the world of soul and disco music this year um obviously some some very big records this year. Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. Uh, for some people still, I guess, his, his best solo record, probably 
I would say it's my favourite Michael Jackson solo record. Earth, Wind and Fire's I Am. Ditto, actually, a, a great Earth, Wind and Fire album. Um, Sister Sledge, We Are Family and Sheik's Risque, which is it's hard to think of them as, as separate albums in a way because they're both very yeah. much um, from the from the Nile Rodgers, uh, Bernard Edwards. Uh, well, I love those two albums in particular. You know, Sheik Risque is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. fantastic records. Um, and also the second album by someone who's going to become, uh, you know, uh, arguably the most important artist of the 80s, Prince. Uh, so he makes yeah. he makes his second album, which is brilliant. Uh, and in fact, he has one of his his most famous songs on it. Um, I want to be your lover. Also, I feel for you, which was which was later picked up and covered by Chaka Khan and turned into a massive hit as well. So there you go, a lesser known Prince album that still has two massive hits on it. So the last album I really want to talk about in any depth, Tim, unless there's anything you feel we've missed. But there's one I think that is um, stands out on its own again. It is an outlier, although it obviously firmly belongs to the tradition of minimalist classical music, um, is Einstein on the Beach, which I know you're a massive fan of mm. too, um, by Philip Glass. Um, so his music for the Robert Wilson opera Einstein on the Beach, which I think had been staged originally about three years before, but the album came out in 1979 as a four LP box set. And even that was an abridged version mm. and in fact he re-recorded it um 20 years later i don't like the re-recording as much as the it's still good but there's something about the sound and the grain of the original yeah. recording of not only of einstein on the beach but i think of his other key piece from this era uh music in 12 parts again which he re-recorded later much smoother better produced but i love the grain of those original 70s recordings there's something very cold about the re-recording something very digital i suppose yeah Yes, I think that's it. And it's the, it's the, the organ tones are more organic on those original mm. recordings. Um, and they're not as perfect that, you, you know, you can, I mean, these people are having to play incredibly complicated, repetitive scores. Not complicated in the sense of there's a lot of music to play, but the music they do have to play, they have to play with incredible concentration to get these mm. repeating ostinatos time and time again with subtle changes, an extra note here, an extra note there, you know, uh, an extra harmony here. I mean, the concentration involved in performing this four-hour piece, this four-hour opera must have been off the scale it, it just it blew my mind when i heard it it's a record i got out of hemel Hempstead library uh probably sometime in the mid 80s and it just completely blew my mind uh and still continues to this day to do so uh, it's a beautiful record i think it's one of the most melodic philip glass records too there are some yeah you get the full gamut of philip glass on this i mean this is one of the yes. problems with this album that in a sense all the philip glass you need to hear is in this album partly true because you know, you have every aspect that he investigates, you know, from the extremely complex shifting time signatures to the relentless ostinatos yeah. um, to the slower, more elegiac mm. pieces that almost kind of have a Mozart or a Bach mm. quality. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there is something perhaps even more hypnotic about this because you have the use of his usual, you know, very... As, as you've put it, grainy organs and the use of the wordless voices. But on this, you also have this added kind of postmodernist use of talking voices, speaking voices. All sorts of gibberish appears to being said, but in such a hypnotic way that obviously, you know, by the end of certain pieces, you have Mr. Bojangles ringing right. around your brain. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, it's relentless, it's hypnotic, it's beautiful. At times, it's overbearingly 
intent. Absolutely, um, absolutely. But but I think also the use of words. I mean, it's it's very. It seems very nostalgic and poetic. I mean, there are precedents for use of, of you know, Robert Ashley had been doing this sort of voice yeah. voice operas for a long time before this. But there's something about the way that he, the Philip Glass, it combines with the Philip Glass music that is incredibly. It seems very nostalgic and poetic, and haunting. Um, and it doesn't. I think this is something you you know you, you can't argue with someone that finds it boring. You either find it intense and it holds your attention or it doesn't and to me it yeah. completely holds my attention um no matter how long it goes on it's almost like i want it to last even longer you know it, it completely holds my attention. i'm completely swept up in it um it's just an extraordinary landmark of, of of 70s you know classical minimalist music but it also crossed over to the pop market as well didn't it which is interesting because it's i think partly because of the repetition and partly because he'd, yeah. he'd made records for virgin north star was on virgin music music in 12 parts was on virgin there was a crossover Ooh. wasn't there i think maybe because of the scene he emerged out of for some reason it sort of fits with that New York CBGB's mm. punk scene. It fits with the art scene of Talking Heads television to an extent. And there's something in the packaging of those albums and perhaps the raw sound, because, of course, the complexity is very different from quite a number of the CBGB's band. This is not the Ramones. But there was something in the packaging and in the raw sound that... The perception of it was that it was coming from this kind of hip ghetto in New York. There's something very exciting about it. I guess that's interesting because they were all hanging out, as I understand it, and most of my understanding comes from reading books by Patti Smith, but there was mm. this sense that all these people were hanging out together. So Lamont Young and Philip Glass were hanging out in the New York lofts with Laurie Anderson, yes. with David Byrne, with Joey Ramone. With yeah. Allen Ginsberg and Robert Fripp. You know. And I love that. And actually, yeah. yeah. Well, there's another thing as well that you can hear in Exposure and you can hear in Discipline and you can hear in League of Gentlemen what Fripp has taken from totally, this. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's astonishingly quietly um, influential. And I guess one of the one of the most major works that came out of this would have been Laurie Anderson's United States that we discussed. Which we talked about, yeah. A while back, which has a kind of similar scope. It's it's very it's very much the sister album to Einstein on the Beach. The use of... The, I yeah. mean, although the musical forces are relatively small on the Laurie Anderson album, it's essentially a solo performance. Certainly the use of speech, uh, taking, taking sort of uh, uh, things from pop culture that seem very trivial and giving them also, imbuing them with a sense of meaning in depth through repetition and yeah. through context is completely what Philip I mean I say Philip Glass I think a lot of the credit has to go to Robert Wilson um, you know obviously who he created yeah. this opera with and Robert Wilson was, a, was a, a, a director of operas and dance and if you can see Einstein on the beach is an extraordinary visual experience yeah I mean it's as I think it probably is the pinnacle of his achievement I, I love Cohen Escarzi I love glass pieces I love dance there's so much of his work that that um that I'm connected to, but maybe this is the one that, that really trumps them all. And North Star, I think, is a nice bite-sized introduction to what Philip Glass does as well. It is. And interestingly enough, North Star was covered this year by Mike Oldfield on Platinum. Um, ah yes so, of course so there is a, there is a crossover to the to the world of, of, of well, well Platinum of course had elements of American minimalism and disco you know this again was a progressive artist doing progressive things um, in contrast if you like to the other great um, progressive guitarist making an album this year Steve Hackett who 
in effect, made a glorious, symphonic, progressive album that in some ways showed a progression in terms of his abilities, but was a real classic progressive statement in the old sense of the... I, yeah. I, I love that album. I mean, he, he does do some things on Spectrum Mornings. He has the piece with the um, the Koto, doesn't he? The, the red... the red. Yeah, and his use of yeah. the guitar synth as well is quite unique. Um, so listen, Tim, I think we should call it a day there. We've been speaking for hours about 1979, it seems to me. Um, let's So let's, let's do our customary thing of rounding up. This is going to be really hard because there are so many albums to choose from. But let's try and choose uh, A, our favourites, and B, the album that we feel perhaps pointed most towards what was going to be coming in the future. So um, what are your thoughts on favourite and most influential? This is almost impossible because there are so many albums from this year that I love from Ricky Lee Jones to Pink Floyd's The Wall to Randy Newman's Born Again to Einstein on the Beach. Um, If I had to take one away on the desert island, I guess I'd go with Einstein on the Beach because there is so much of it in that album. There's so much of it. Yes, it's three hours long. Yeah. And despite its repetition, I still think it throws up surprises. So maybe I go for Einstein on the beach and the wall as my two favourites. So I'll go for one obvious and one less obvious. In terms of influential, it's again impossible to say because of course that razor edge post-punk sound really only has a kind of a limited lifespan as much as I like it. Whereas something like the Giorgio Moroder Sparks album, you could still hear in elements of music you know in the early 90s okay i think those are good choices yeah yeah i'm i'm going to agree with you or i'm going to be boring and i'm going to agree with you on on einstein on the beach that is definitely one of my desert island discs i think the other would be uh, metal box by public image uh, or second edition depending on which version you've got um i i also love bill nelson's red noise uh, album um it, yeah there's so many great records um in terms of most influential, I th- I'm going to go for the Gary Newman, uh, the Pleasure Principle. I I, I think okay that even yeah, e- a good choice. even though perhaps his his influence hasn't always been as strong. I think for a short period after um, he kind of broke through, I think there was a very strong influence he had on almost all pop music um, going into the early '80s. Uh, so uh, you know, and I th- and I think actually his influence is still heard today. You know, you you can hear it yeah. in, in artists like Nine Inch Nails for sure. And also, he was sampled a lot by bands like Sugar Babes, you know, and and some other mm. pop artists. So he he's kind of he's he's kind of always there. He's always Gary Newman's always there somehow uh, in pop music even today. Um, and he was an incredible. Yeah, and I think he's a very underrated figure. And incredibly innovative in his time. Incredibly innovative in his time. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's great. So it just leaves uh, leaves it for me to say uh, thank you very much on behalf of myself and Tim. And again, just to remind people, if you can, if you have enjoyed this, please do do leave us reviews and ratings on uh, on the podcast sites. It, it really helped a lot uh, last time. A lot of people led, uh, left reviews, including the person that left us our first one star review. Thank you very much for that. But um, <laughs> you can't appeal to everyone. Uh, but you know these things really help us. So if you do have time, just drop us drop us a, a rating or even a little you know a couple of lines review would be great to encourage us or not or to discourage us depending on how you feel about this um thank you very much and we'll see you next time for another year i don't know what that will be me and tim haven't discussed that yet but uh thank you very much goodbye from me and goodbye from tim goodbye goodbye